Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this online public lecture programme event. My name is Julia Black and I'm the Strategic Director of Innovation as well as Professor of Law here at the LSE. Furthermore, I'm also an external member of the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Committee, though I'm here tonight in my LSE capacity. I'm delighted to be chairing this event that's jointly hosted by the LSE's Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment and the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. This is an incredibly important event, which is on a topic that is increasingly in the headlines. And we have the most incredible set of speakers here with us this evening. Our first panelist today is Eric Buisson, who's a critical minerals analyst at the International Energy Agency and part of the World Energy Outlook team. And prior to joining the IEA, Eric served as policy officer at the French Ministry of Energy Transitions Mineral Resources Department, looking at topics including critical raw materials, ESG, conflict minerals, and corresponding European and international affairs. I'm also delighted to welcome Sophia Kalantzakos to LSE today. Sophia is a global distinguished professor in environmental studies and public policy at New York University, Abu Dhabi, and her research focuses on resource and power and on new spatial imaginaries that reflect the changing ways that we think about global space and interdependence. And she's the author of many things, including China and the Geopolitics of Rare Earths, an editor of Critical Minerals, The Climate Crisis and The Tech Imperium. We're also joined by Daniel Litvin from the LSE, LSE GRI side this evening. And Daniel is Senior Advisor to the Executive Committee of ERM, founder of Critical Resource and author of Empires of Profit, Commerce, Conquest and Corporate Responsibility. He's also a visiting senior fellow at the Grantham Research Institute and proudly an alum of the LSE. And then last but not least, Rob Patalano is joining us from the OECD. He's senior counsellor there, and prior to joining the OECD, Rob spent five years at the Financial Stability Board in Basel, where he led the assessment of global financial stability risks to the Standing Committee on Assessment of Vulnerabilities and chaired its analytical group on vulnerabilities. Prior to that role, Rob spent a decade at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in managerial and analytical roles in the markets group, and also served on the NY New York Fed's liquidity facilities during the US financial crisis. So I, as you can see, an incredibly distinguished list of speakers. I'm delighted that you're all able to hear to join us this evening to discuss the role of critical minerals and geopolitics in the context of the difficulties and potential opportunities achieving the net zero transition. Because critical minerals or transition critical minerals, as the colleagues from Grantham, OECD and Bon de France designate them in a recent paper, will have to play a vital role in making our economies more sustainable. Transitioning to net zero emissions requires a large scale transition to renewable energy. And as research by the IEA and colleagues at Grantham shows, scaling up the manufacturing of the technologies, including solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, electric vehicles, and more, will result in significant demand for and consequent dependency on the supply of a range of minerals in the foreseeable future. But because these transition critical minerals, including metals, minerals, and rare earth elements are required to manufacture the low carbon technologies that we need, supply chain risks and demand uncertainties are becoming central topics that will have to be addressed and assessed as we transition to a low carbon 
economy. So the panel today can provide us with multiple different perspectives based on their expertise in this area. And so I'm looking forward to hearing about the geopolitics of supply chains, the demand and supply dynamics of different transition pathways, the challenges and opportunities for energy and mining firms, and about whether our panelists think there could be potential and economic financial stability implications. So as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the panelists. And so to submit your questions, please could you use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Um, questions will then be submitted to me and I'll pose as many as possible uh, to the speakers. And for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Critical Minerals. The event is being recorded and should be made available as a podcast uh, quite soon, subject to no technical difficulties. So this is our evening, beautifully set up, hopefully. And I'm now going to turn up to our panelists with our initial thoughts on the topic. So Eric, can I begin with you? Hi, everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to join so this, this very interesting uh, event on critical minerals. Uh, I wanted to share with you a couple of slides. Sorry, I might have shared them a bit earlier. And I'd like to apologize for that. Um, and so here we go. Uh, I, so the, the point of the, this very short slideshow is also to, to show you maybe what the IEA has been doing, um, some, some of the modeling uh, work, uh, a few results, and also a few opening points uh, about challenges on critical minerals. Um, so as some of you may know, wait, oh yeah, sorry. So as some of you may know, uh, the IA has published in 2021 uh, a report on critical minerals, pointing out the role they play in the clean energy transition. And since then, uh, we've been updating uh, our results, our models. And so maybe maybe um, to present a bit rapidly what's, what was our approach and what, what is our approach, um, we, the IA produces um, scenarios regarding uh, the future of energy uh, and, and its supply, particularly um, in the context of the green transition right now. So um, there's, there's an approach that's based on three scenarios. The first one based on stated policies, um, the second one based on announced pledges, and the first one based on, on the scenario that would require uh, to achieve net zero emissions. So on this framework, uh, the team at the IEA has been trying to project what that could mean in terms of mineral mineral demand um, for the key minerals that are essential for the green transition. Um, so there's, there's been a couple of results that had been published in 2021. And so there's now this continuous effort to update them with the latest data, uh, latest knowledge on mineral intensities. And so um, I, I'm happy to share with you a few a few recent updated graphs uh, we've been making. So as as I said uh, previously, so there's there's this three three scenario approach, and we can see that in all of these scenarios, um, the demand for minerals is expected to increase in order to, to achieve the the climate goals. So even in the in the stated scenario in stated policy scenario, we can see that there's quite a significant increase in the mineral requirements related to clean energy technologies uh, starting from 2030 to 2050. And the more efforts um, are put in place by governments, uh, by, by companies to, to develop those technologies, the more um, 
the demand of a certain number of these minerals is expected to increase. Uh, what's what's in, uh, quite interesting is to look about uh, look at the differences between the stated the APS scenario and the net zero by 2050 approach. In in those two scenarios, um, we can see that there's there's quite a significant demand in 2050. But if we want to make the efforts to actually achieve uh, net zero by 2050, um, it also means that there's going to be uh, quite a significant demand for these minerals uh, as early as 2030. So that's that's maybe what we what I wanted to point it out. Um, as you can see, there's a few uh, key technologies that correspond to the mo to the most significant mass of of these of this demand. Um, so there's of course the development of the electric networks, which require quite a significant quantity of copper. Um, there's the deployment of energy storage, typically uh, with batteries, but also batteries and electric vehicles, which also correspond to significant uh, increase in mass uh, of, of required minerals. Uh, and then there's wind and solar, which also have their part to play. Uh, one of the fastest drivers is of course lithium, which is a mineral that's required in most battery technologies uh, that are being developed today, both for storage and EVs. And so in those aspects, you can see um, that there's going to be a significant increase in demand in, in volume, right? Um, you can also make that analysis in, in terms of, of value. Um, so on that side too, um, there's going to be quite a significant change uh, in the mining industry too, because a significant portion of the demand of, for metals and minerals uh, will, will be coming from uh, the green transition sector. Now, of course, there's this, this growing demand, right? Um, but then there's also key issues which we're going to be debating a bit further uh, in this in this evening. Um, and so I tried to make some some kind of synthetic dashboard of maybe three areas uh, where there could be some some challenges. Um, so those those are relevant, of course, to to volume. Um, there's challenges in scaling up supply to meet rapid demand growth. Um, so that's 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 a ch chart at the bottom. Um, you 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 will note so so this this chart it corresponds to lithium demand, and so if you compare projected demand with known projects um, and and of which correspond to anticipated supply, you can see that there's quite quite a significant supply gap right now, uh, starting from 2030. Um, a second key challenge is of course the higher geographical concentration of production uh, that affects both those minerals that are needed in very large quantities, um, but also smaller, less known com commodities or lesser known commodities. Um, and those can, can be rare earths typically or platinum group metals, which are needed in much smaller quantities, but uh, still uh, can, can be quite, quite a significant challenge to supply if, if, we, if we keep um, that level of concentra concentration we've been observing uh, in those past years in our supply chains. Um, and so there's this, this something that's going to probably be discussed quite a lot uh, this evening. And then finally, and I think that's that's one of the, the key points that the IEA report uh, has, been, has been putting forward is also the impacts itself on the clean energy transition. Um, if, if tensions on those mineral markets appear, if tensions of supply and supply uh, appear, then that also may raise the cost of a certain number of technologies. 
and it may also uh, put at risk some some of of the most optimistic uh, scenarios that 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 could exist, right? Um, so so these are the three three key challenges. Um, but maybe to conclude, I think there's 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 a number of areas of hope uh, which need to be to be mentioned. Of course, there's perspectives for recycling. Um, I think um, we're developing we're, we're developing approaches uh, to see what what would be the volume uh, of minerals that could be recycled for uh, end of life vehicles, for example. And we can see that that has a part to play in in the supply of of raw materials once once the first generation of vehicles starts start being starts being recycled. So so there's recycling. Um, there's of course significant um, incertitudes in terms of technology developments, uh, which also might change quite a lot. Uh, the raw materials that will be needed. Um, but what we've also been observing is that in the long term, uh, as technologies develop. Humanity tends to need a larger um, variety of metals rather than a smaller variety of metals. Um, but uh, there definitely can be significant material substitution that might ease some of those tensions. And then there's also uh, a number of incertitudes in terms of, of actually consumer behaviors, policy behaviors, and, and finally also that um, they are, you know, um, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to predict. Uh, what will known mineral resources uh, be in the next few years? Because as you know, there's constant mineral exploration. And if you look 10 years ago or 20 years ago for a number of com commodities, um, the mineral deposits, that, that is the mines that could potentially appear and supply the market. Uh, those mineral deposits were of course not always known. And so as, as time goes by, um, in the long term, you can also expect some some increasing uh, um, projects to appear. But as 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 you probably know, um, you can't expect on the short term uh, mineral exploration to actually uh, bridge the gap uh, that might appear uh, early on, uh, because uh, the time to actually develop a mine uh, can be quite quite long, uh, easily about ten years, sometimes more, uh, and so. If, if the project doesn't exist right now, there's little chance that uh, uh, a mineral deposit will, will be supplying the market in the next 10 years. So I think I've, I've tried to, to, bring, to, to bring together uh, a, few, a few ideas to, the, to this debate, and I, I think I, I can conclude. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Eric. And that set us up really well. I think you've set out that some of the issues there uh, exceptionally well and some of the uncertainties around that as well. Um, Sophia, I wonder if I can turn to you now for, for um, some of your perspectives on this issue. Okay, good evening and thank you for attending. Here's what we know. The climate crisis is worsening. The urgency of taking bold action is clear, but we continue to bury our heads in the sand. We also know that for these past decades, our climate conversations have been heavily focused on emissions reduction, particularly CO2. Why is this significant? Because it means that we focused our attention on overhauling our energy and transportation systems to move away from fossil fuels as soon as possible. We've thus prioritized the decarbonization of the global economy, which at this moment has come to make economic sense allowing technologies to scale up. As a result, we're moving quickly toward the electrification of transport and the deployment of renewables. 
ergo why we need all of these minerals. We have also rapidly ushered in the fourth industrial revolution and the digitalization of the global economy, which has led to staunch competition over who will control the tech imperium. The technologies of these sectors are materially intensive and require a number of critical minerals scattered all across the world, especially in the developing world. The technological applications themselves have moreover been built across interdependent supply chains that have been truly global and economically efficient. However, just as we need everyone on board to tackle a global commons problem for which 2030 constitutes the date by which we lose the fight against a temperature increase of one and a half degrees, geopolitics has turned hyper-competitive and contentious, and to be more honest, violent and divisive. Now, the tragic war in Ukraine increasingly cements the frame of an inevitably divided world order. In truth, however, geopolitical contention revolves principally around China, its rise, its power, its different political system, its global intentions, and Xi Jinping's most recent preference for heavy-handed autocratic policies and demonstrative closeness to Putin's Russia. Now, President Obama pivoted to Asia after 2009 already, just when voices in China began to vocalize the belief that the US was not only in accelerating decline, but had become an increasingly irresponsible global stakeholder that could plunge the global economy into recession as a result of the 2008 financial crisis. China was no longer willing to stand aside and watch. It was too big a risk to the party, to stability, and to the government's promises for continual growth. See, more than anyone previously, but in continuation of past policy, concretized China's frustration with the West and Beijing's ambition to return to center stage. He launched the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. That's China's global vision for the 21st century. The BRI forms a novel network of land, maritime, and digital connectivity that according to Beijing, offers a concrete blueprint for the win-win peaceful development of the developing world so it does not keep lagging behind. Xi spoke openly about the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and has offered ecological civilization as a normative and operational strategy for growth and prosperity in the climate crisis era. These developments worried the US, but Trump ripped off the Band-Aid and declared China as America's number one rival and adversary. The US dragged the PRC to its side and on the world stage, and as a result, the blinding spotlight focused on China has now helped globally cement the perception that the world system without China's input is no longer viable. Pushback against China continues and garners bipartisan support in Washington. Now the green transition requires, as I said, numerous inputs, some more critical than others, as well as uninterrupted supply chains from mine to market. In the West, in this, the West has discovered that it's vulnerable and China's strong. China, for instance, has over decades been actively consolidating its relationships in the developing world and secured a dominant position in the extraction industry. Of course, all this does not constitute news because the rare earth crisis of 2010, when China unofficially and for a short period halted exports of rare earths to Japan, 
over a maritime dispute had already revealed the growing material risks. But the problem was largely underappreciated at the time as faith in globalization remained strong. At that time, China controlled 97% of rare earth production and today approximately 80-85%. It has also since then become the largest consumer of rare earths given its prioritization of excelling in the green tech space, 5G and AI. Importantly, Beijing also maintains a very dominant position in the production of magnets. 90% of the market share for neodymium iron boron magnets, for instance, that are essential components in electronics, defense systems, wind turbines, and a slew of other technologies. Now, 13 years after the rare earth crisis of 2010, major industrial actors are again scrambling to secure rare earths. Only now, as we saw, the list of critical minerals has expanded to include, among others, lithium and cobalt. Now, you can imagine the anxiety of China's competitors when, according to a 2020 World Bank report, the production of lithium and cobalt alone may increase by 500 percent by 2050 to meet clean energy demand. Growing geopolitical contention has meant that for four decades of global economic integration around the global supply chains for raw materials, many of which depend on Chinese scientific and manufacturing expertise in the upstream and midstream parts of raw materials value chains has become destabilized. This constitutes a major headache for states and private companies that have deployed technological components essential to closing the infrastructure gap and meeting decarbonization targets around this supply nexus, not to mention the fourth industrial revolution. Over the years, I have maintained that the EU though a close uh, US ally, has not bought into this frame of bipolar competition. And while building a circular economy and resilience, it has not initiated policies to actively exclude the PRC. Some EU policies seem similar to those of the US, but at the very least, the tone accompanying policy rationale has been different. The EU is a major regulatory power that excels in building new standards and remains a proponent of a multipolar rules-based order. It has made climate diplomacy its signature global policy and has kept negotiations going even when the US withdrew and China obstructed. It maintains a more balanced position vis-a-vis -vis the China threat. The EU's green transition is at the center of its economic transformation. And though the war in Ukraine has caused many upsets, the main goal has not changed. Most recently, for instance, the last hurdle with Germany and a few others was cleared so that a mandate comes into force requiring sales of only zero emission vehicles from 2035. I believe that the European Union helps keep actors focused on what ultimately matters, which is the climate emergency. Now, that being said, just a few days ago, the Commission's announcements on net zero on the Net Zero Industry Act and the Critical Raw Materials Act that set ambitious targets was criticized as lacking incentives and regulations to help industry meet the targets. So we shall, we'll stay tuned for more on this. Finally, I'd like to say that I work with a cohort of experts, academics, and people from industry and finance 
In our publications, we caution against growing geopolitical contention, point to the environmental implications that spring for the material intensity of the green transition, spotlight the thinking of industrial actors, examine the application of ESG, and advocate for finding an appropriate institutional actor to help decarbonization and digitalization become a true paradigm for an equitable and inclusive global transition that will include the developing world. That's all I have to say for now, and I'm sure I'll get back to you uh, in the Q&A. You most definitely will. <laughs> I can assure you of that. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Tour de force, if I may say, through contemporary geopolitics, but bringing together those, those two twin um, forward moves that we have, of, of you say, the fourth industrial revolution and the, and the green transition requiring exact dependency on exactly the same uh, minerals and then and therefore uh, the same actors and with all the complexities that that brings. So I'm sure there'll be topics we will be returning to. But before then, I'm going to bring in Daniel, if I may. Daniel. Thanks very much, uh, Julia. We'll just say it's great to be in this uh, very interesting discussion. And, and I'm aware that apart from obviously this event that uh, both GRI and obviously OECD are doing really uh, interesting work on, on, on this topic. Um, so my, my particular interest or sort of fascination is with the behavior of um, big companies, um, big global companies, particularly extractive uh, industries and, and how they um, handle and manage and quite often or sometimes mismanage some of the geopolitical and uh, sustainability pressures that we've already been uh, been hearing about um, as well as a fascination with sort of the, what history tells us about about these issues and and uh, Judy you mentioned you know the the, the company I, I uh, developed critical resource which advises resource companies in this area now belonging to ERM the big sustainability consulting firm I should emphasize that everything I say is um, in a personal capacity rather than representing uh, any of those firms um, uh, look I, I I would Eric and Sophia have already articulated well I think a, a lot of the key points let me make uh, three basic points by way of my, my introduction. Um, first is that, uh, and this is perhaps the more upbeat of my three points, I think that over the last sort of 12 months, I think policymakers in Western countries, Western capitals, have got, I think, much more to grips, have got a much stronger grasp on, on the challenge, on the nature of the problem that we are facing. And again, Eric, and they've already articulated that very well. What just in brief, what is what is the problem? We will need a lot, a lot more of these critical minerals to um, build the infrastructure needed for a swift energy transition. Um, there is a risk that the supplies will not be available uh, for for the demand and the huge increases in demand that Eric laid out in his charts. Um, in part, and I'll perhaps come, we'll come back to this, in part because of the delays that are often involved in the long process in developing new mines and new industrial facilities. And then linked to that, there's, the, as Sophia mentioned, there's this very, very big geopolitical angle that the risk, or at least the fear, whether it's merited or not, that the West's dependence on these critical imports of these critical minerals um uh risks may, may be weaponized by you know powers that aren't in keen on western dominance not least you know the, the 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 chart that showed from eric that showed how much china controls particularly of the processing 
uh, of these um, critical minerals, but also quite a bit of the upstream or increasing amounts of the upstream sort of uh, extraction as well. And just as Russia, you know, clearly weaponized its control of or um, uh, dominance of gas supplies to Europe as part of the war in Ukraine, and there's this concern fair or not that, that China might might do the same. And as Sophia says, has already done so uh, at some point in the past with regard to rare earths. So to my mind, this the problem, the definition of the problem, I think is much clearer to us and is broadly understood and agreed. Leading on to my second point, which is that I think that Western countries grasp of the solutions, how to fix these challenges is much, much weaker. It is not anywhere near the scale as yet of, of, of the challenges. Um, there's a growing number of uh, positive initiatives uh, in, in this area, but I, to my mind, they're broadly scratching the surface. So, you know, in, in Western countries, um, it is difficult to see supplies of these critical minerals expanding swiftly enough given in particular and again hopefully we can come back to this in particular the level of local opposition to to new mines and to a lesser degree to new industrial facilities because of concerns which are understandable around their environmental and and, and uh, social impacts and also the the long permitting processes that are involved in uh, in um, expanding uh, mines and then in in the global south, um, I, I think there's a real risk that the sort of geopolitical competition for these critical minerals, which I think is we're just seeing the start of, becomes very damaging and fails to increase uh, the supplies uh, as is intended. And moreover, uh, if I can use the, the phrase of the resource curse, it, it further entrenches the resource curse in a lot of these uh, resource rich but poorer uh, uh, countries. And again, many good initiatives in this area, but it's difficult to my mind to see them overcoming what I, I would say are very deep-rooted, almost historical dynamics uh, around geopolitical competition for resources, which we've seen play out in oil and gas over many decades, and I suspect will begin to play out now in similar ways with, with critical minerals. Thirdly and finally, therefore, you know, um, I would say that to really tackle these challenges, we need more, more powerful and more, even more ambitious initiatives. It's a bit like a rugby tackle. We need to approach them, uh, you know, with energy and momentum, not not just to prod them uh, a little bit. So, for example, if we're going to really boost critical mineral supplies in Western countries, I think we need to think really hard about reforming permitting processes to accelerate them provided, and this is a really important point, provided that the operators of the mines and industrial facilities meet the very highest environmental and social standards. Then in terms of boosting critical mineral supplies, say in the global south, my sense is that the Western companies together with Western governments really need to strengthen the social and economic benefits that are delivered um, as a result of mining to, to these uh, poorer, resource-rich countries. There's a lot of talk about engaging in a race to the top, but I think it's more talk than action. But I think that is the only way um, that that we're going to guarantee uh, security of supplies from these countries over the long term. No, fantastic. Thank you so much. And I think very, really good to start drilling down onto some of those really quite 
detailed issues around solutions to this um, and something I'm sure we'll get into as we get into the Q&A and, and wider discussion. But but finally, Rob, I want to bring I want to bring you in because you have a, a particular perspective on this, which I think would be really interesting to hear. Thanks. So I want to thank you uh, and, and also Grantham Institute and LSC for, for inviting me to this event. I'm just thrilled with this range of speakers because, uh, you know, from my background, I've focused on the financial markets and institutions and also financial stability um, and as well financial crises and how policymakers overcome financial crises. But this one has a really a new twist to it and something that, that I'm getting up to speed on. So I certainly want to thank Hugh Miller for his um, shaping my views and prodding me, perhaps a rugby tackle most recently to get me really up to speed on these issues. And hopefully my own experience is that for central bankers, I very much think that part of the effort we're, we're doing here today or tonight and what we need to do within our communities is to get central banks and financial authorities as well up to speed given the implications. And that's what I'd like to talk about uh, tonight. So in my remarks, I wanna to touch on a few things. First, how the end energy transition disruptions from the critical mineral supply demand imbalances as they may occur could be distinct from prior energy shocks, but of course we can learn from, from the, the commonalities. Second, the financialization of commodities and of course its impl implications. And then third, how this could impact financial systems and financial um, stability and resilience and what that means for policymakers. So, um, of course, we can appreciate that turning to the energy markets, we can learn from past disruptions from the supply shocks of the 1970s, even most recently to Russia's war in Ukraine. Yet we must appreciate that it's what's distinct about critical minerals and this supply demand dynamic and how the shocks to price and availability can translate into financial risks. Um, so with each energy crisis, while they're each distinct, some themes from price volatility to concentration, to supply and increase financialization. This is really a key issue because it leads to concentration risk and, 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 and price volatility, et cetera. Um, and that the transition critical materials required for the deployment of low carbon technologies, um, this really presents a new challenge, not just for the energy sector, but of course, for financial markets and financial uh, stability as well. Uh, so the transition to a net zero economy brings two new elements to the energy sector. First, the demand will be driven not only by production and consumption in the real economy, but by the necessity to meet climate policy targets. And that's a new twist. It's not part of the supply and demand that, that we're all used to as economists. Uh, and that's not how central banks are used to thinking. But climate policy is important, particularly when transition and physical risks are now coming to the fore from a financial stability standpoint. And this won't succeed without significant policy support. So that's a key theme. And then second, the commodities needed for low carbon technologies will be brought and you know, bought and sold by market participants. So there's really a market's dynamic to it. It affects the stock of energy infrastructure rather than the flow of energy production, such as in oil and natural gas. And in this context, demand will be the forefront of the next possible energy crisis. Uh, and that's in part what the, what the excellent paper produced by some of the colleagues on the call here today um, uh, talk about. So the transition brings unprecedented demand, both in terms of quantity and rate of increase in the demand for the transition critical materials. And I think that both of these factors have consequences for financial and price stability, ultimately. I mean, it depends on the magnitude and the velocity, but in concept, you can push the envelope and see how this can really have an effect in certain circumstances. And we have to understand the dynamics and the spillovers and their implication. 
So while achieving the climate transition is an imperative to avoid physical risks um, from climate change, central banks, financial authorities, they need to ensure sufficient financial stability to ensure that the system can effectively um, finance the transition, right? The stability is there in its own right for citizens, but we also want stability for the effective financing of transition to prevent the actual physical risks from occurring. Um, so in that sense, they have to safeguard the system from the consequences of disorder in this disorderly transition, particularly when critical minerals are exacerbating that, that element of disorder that you've seen in the NGFS scenario. So putting it differently, getting the quantity and the velocity right to balance these two really depends on market resilience and effective policies, both, which in turn can enable real economy transitions. So if I may, let me just digress and let's turn back to history. Despite the distinct characteristics of climate transition and the lessons from previous energy crises, that can be used to better inform um, us of the challenges ahead and how these risks manifest themselves and what can be done. So I think what we can learn from the 1970s and more recently the Russia, um, the implications of the Russia war in, in Ukraine, it's clear that the invasion of Ukraine has put significant inflationary pressures on economies, particularly in Europe, and it highlights the possible implications in the markets. And of course, as, as I think was mentioned, Russia is one of the largest producers of nickel. And in the wake of the invasion, that had implications for uh, the London Metal Exchange to halt trading. And I think that's just an example. But this concentration of players due to the financialization of critical minerals and the way that our markets work and, 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 and the nature of, um, of the derivatives markets, this, is, this could be really fragile when we need it to perform most. Uh, and this is really an early warning sign for what could happen um, if there is a materialization of geopolitical events that would delay the transition and commit uh, global economy uh, and exacerbate the effects of climate change. So um, in the wake of, this, um, uh, of these challenges, I think we can think further about how this unfolds from a financial standpoint. And recent analysis by the Financial Stability Board, my former employer, show that over the 90% of the outstanding European oil and gas derivatives are held by non-financial non corporates and investment firms, and that these volatility spikes result in increased demand for liquidity through margin calls. And I also just happen to be reading an ECB's recent assessment in their own financial stability review, which highlights that firms trading in energy derivatives are really relying on bank credit, lines of credit to deal with the consequences of rising energy costs. And furthermore, most transactions in traded derivatives uh, in the energy markets are cleared by just a handful of banks, at least in Europe, and they need to manage to step in the liquidity risk. So this makes it really clear that we're moving from lessons learned from the past to the current environment and highlights that the concentration poses potential stability risks. We already know this, but getting other central banks up to speed on some of these recent lessons is really important. So um, I'll, I'll move on. I'll play out the scenario in terms of the sharp increases in demand as envisioned in this Grantham Institute um, report. Um, that's really important to think about the severity uh, on the financial system. So we see a study from the IMF that shows prices of lithium, copper, cobalt reaching all-time highs under the IEA's uh, net zero transition scenario. And I think, another, again, others have mentioned that on the, on the call today about lithium prices increasing up to 500% during the period. And then the Grantham Research Institute's delayed transition piece that was recently published also highlights the scenario about sustained commodity prices to undermine 
um, financial viability. And I would like to take that a little bit further to say, this occurrence would not only derail the efforts of climate transition, but clearly, I mean, you can play it out, it would create potential credit and market risks in a variety of ways, both as inputs, you know, pure inputs, um, you know, for instance, batteries for electric vehicles, or inputs as they pass through to energy. And to the extent that this can't be passed through to the end consumer, if it is, it's inflationary. And if it can't be passed through, then it eats into profits and credit worthiness and it undermines the asset quality of the banking system or of funds or of, of market-based finance. So either way you cut this, it's going to have an impact in that flow through and, 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 and can have devastating consequences depending on other factors, where you are in the credit cycle, the economic conditions. If you have pockets of fragility in the banking system, as we saw in in San Francisco recently, things that you wouldn't have imagined if you have just a few of these elements that, that supervisors are not aware of and you add challenges from the climate transition, you can really uh, have a shock in your hands. So at the end of the day, I mean, I, I will ask ourselves questions about financial risks that could arise from the trans transition critical materials. Are central banks truly ready to respond? Do authorities really have the data they need? I think these are open questions. I think the answer right now is no. And our job, everyone around the table, people listening on the call, our job collectively is to try and answer those questions. And I couldn't think about, of, of a better group to try and do that. So again, very pleased to be here. Thank you. Fantastic, Rob. That was an absolute tour de force, if I may say, um, through uh, some of the, the ways, as, as you say, that some of these tensions that we've been talking about, them, some of these bottlenecks, yet combined with the political imperative, which is actually hastening that, that that, uh, that process and therefore really impacting on, on speed and velocity are, are going to layer in and, and come through a financial system that just might not be ready actually to be to cope with that. Um, and it's amazing how crisis always seem to originate from what seemed to be a very quiet corner of the garden um, and uh, <clears throat> have effects in ways that we haven't really understood. So listen, I don't know about everybody um, who's joining us online. I could certainly stay here pretty much till at least 10 o'clock to discuss these issues. Unfortunately, we don't have that time. Um, but I am quite soon going to turn to uh, the questions which are coming in uh, from those of you online. So if you could just make sure you're try typing your thought questions into the Q&A box. Um, we're going to try and answer as many as we can. Um, and if you could just make sure you write your name, your affiliation, your location, and we're obviously here to keep keen to hear from people from a whole variety of locations um, today to enrich our discussion. So while, while everybody online is busy typing away, um, I do have a few questions for the panelists. Actually, I'm going to abuse my position as chair. Um, and Sophia, you touched on this, um, which is about the, the how the, the geopolitical alignments are likely to shift. And you really emphasise the role of Europe potentially uh, in that space but I was just um but also I think um what has been touched on Daniel also touched on the issue about developing countries and issues in relation to um you know trying to avoid the resource curse this time around uh, and China's own moves that you picked up actually in relation to their own plays as it were in relation to developing countries so I was wondering if you could just um elaborate a little bit more on how you think the need for critical minerals is going to shape some of those geopolitical alignments um, across across the globe. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like 
Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Uh, there are de- definitely going to be geopolitical uh, realignments. We're already seeing that. Um, mm. I think this is why I use Europe as an example. I think mm. Europe is saying we need to diversify supply chains. We need to build resilience. We need to create a circular economy. But it's not pointing its finger at China. Of course, mm. it doesn't want to be in a stranglehold. And as we saw from the graphs, China has a very dominant position, not only in the materials themselves, but across the supply chain in various applications. So upstream, downstream, midstream, mm. it, it has it's developed um, a strategy that it has followed through. It has a very clear ambition to be a leader in a tech space um, especially in, this is a, a transportation revolution. This yeah. is a civilian revolution. I mean, people keep talking about the military, but this we're cars, we're, we're building electric cars and we're building wind turbines and solar panels. And, you know, the military is a, a sideshow, although it does securitize the issue. So I think the competition is that China did not have these uh, automotive industries that Europe and the United States and Japan had, and it wanted to carve out a niche for itself because there's no industrial power with it yeah. without being a car making power. So uh, that and its investment in renewables, uh, it's been very clear about that. Now, that being said, I think that the United States already, um, like-minded countries, allies, um, democracies, should we say it? There's so many dilemmas out there, democracies versus autocracies, the West versus OECD, uh, friends, foes, allies, rivals. But the reality is that the United States is trying to work very closely with Canada. It just signed on uh, another agreement with Japan. The EU is is working with Canada, with the United States. So the usual suspects Mm. will be working together. The problem, the the tone is the issue because the reality is the climate crisis is a clock that's ticking. Mm. Uh, We have 2030, that's in seven years from now. We Mm. need to get a lot achieved. Uh, I'm very much personally and, you know, from a scholarly capacity, but also as a citizen of the world against the division of the world, most countries do not want it Mm. uh, because the world is much more interconnected financially, politically, Mm. and in terms of mobility. All of these supply chains that we've been describing have been designed to be global. Mm. And so I think we're, we're what we need to do, and this is why Europe, I think, is trying to take the middle of the ground and it can be the moderator. Perhaps it will kill everyone with bureaucracy, but it does create standards and it does create regulations. It's a it's a normative regulatory power that kills you with paperwork. However, in the end, it is the most advanced and mature in producing these standards. The ESG standards that we're even discussing are based on all the work that the European Union has done. So I know that people want to always kind of say, oh, Europe can never get it together. But even in the in the European way, things are advancing because the climate, climate diplomacy and has been the the one, uh, I think, the strongest diplomatic card that Europe has has played. And this is important vis-a-vis the developing world as well. Because we keep talking about inclusion and equity, but the developing world has the minerals and they cannot just become the consumers of our products. We need to share 
knowledge and exchange. Uh, and we need to share knowledge. We need to develop technology together. So they need to also participate so they too can add value to their economies. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I was wondering actually if, um, Eric, if I could turn for you actually to think about, because some of the work the IEA is doing is looking at, um, as we try to navigate all these different geopolitics, thinking about both energy security as well as the as well as the transition. So how do we how do we work through reconciling uh, those two needs, and and how do we manage some of the trade offs that might be involved? Well, thank you for your question. Um, I'd say um, on on the question specifically of energy security, it's important to remind the audience that critical minerals are are not exactly fuels, right? Uh, so a typical windmill won't stop turning because you ran out or you have a supply shock in terms of rare earths. So, I mean, to that extent, um, if you're if you're less reliant on fossil fuels um, and you've built windmills and you've moved on with into the the green transition, you there's there's some significant chances you're you're going to have an economy that's that's actually uh, that has maybe a bit less security, energy security problems than the one that's still heavily reliant on the import of uh, fossil fuels. Um, but then, of course, I think the key point is that potential disruptions uh, may, however, affect the speed of the green transition itself. And uh, I think uh, recent events, um, and typically the, the question of energy security, has has illustrated that. Um, I think. Uh, we've been we've become more aware of questions of weaponized interdependence and and so people have been looking at um other supply vulnerabilities um the the IEA has has a history of um of um of looking at those issues it was set up in the 70s uh in the context of the 1970s energy crisis and so there's there's been for a long time questions regarding uh supply and it frames into larger debates on on jobs on economic security economic vulnerability and and so if if you you have um a sensibility, a sense, um, a vulnerability in terms of supply, uh, it can affect your economy, and it can affect, in the long run, um, your energy supply. Um, I think maybe one one of the key challenges I, I I might be wanting to put forward is that a number of those vulnerabilities are quite upstream in the supply chain, so they're also a bit harder to see than vulnerabilities in fuel supply, for example. Um, so it also means countries have been trying to understand, you know, how how the supply chains are built, um, how things are made, uh, what can be recycled. And so there's also quite a quite a significant work to actually look into this, um, to look into this and and try to to understand um, where where are the vulnerabilities because you can, you don't always see them typically in the in the trade data numbers. And so there's this 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 work and this analysis that's been done. Quite, quite well, indeed. I think we we need to mention uh, the work done by the European Union over the past ten years since the uh, China Japan rare earth crisis. Um, there's been a number of academics that but that have been looking at how how things are built, and now we are arriving in a situation um, where we we have that analysis. Uh, administrations have done a part of the homework. Uh, Germany has has an agency that's that's been working on this subject, for example, for the past 10 years. Um, and then 
this, those crises, those recent crises in the supply chains in terms of an energy security. And so the two are kind of bringing together and putting that at the agenda right now. Um, and so, so that's, that's maybe how I would frame the, the debate uh, or the, the coincidences between the question of energy security and the question of energy uh, of um, critical mineral supply. Thank you. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Well, can I um, turn to you actually, and just picking up, I suppose, you know, again, the issue of energy security is also going to play into into areas of financial risk, is it not? So, to just really think through, I'm quite taken by your word characterizing the financialization, as it were, of the um, of the transition uh, and the and the uh, and the the issues around the trading, in particular, of uh, on the commodity markets, which we know have not necessarily always been the most heavily regulated, actually, to be honest, areas of the markets or the most or the areas that anybody has really particularly looked at. So, you know, central banks are uh, and banking supervisors are, are, you know, getting to grips, as it were, with the risk coming to, from uh, the non-banking financial system. But what you're talking about here is the non-financial system, <laughs> not even, you know, coming in, coming through. So, so I mean, just obviously a huge topic, but what would be the main things and main implications you'd be arguing that central banks and fund uh, should really be looking at um, and sort of starting to build resilience in as we look at these demand-induced pressures that we're likely to see? Sure. Thank you for the question, Julia. And, and you know, there's a long list. I'll touch on a few issues. So you think about it, you know, geopol geopolitics, Critical minerals aside can affect financial markets in a variety of ways. When we turn to commodities and critical minerals, you can think about, you know, from the Cold War to the oil crisis to U.S.-China trade, this starts to flow through to um, the geopolitics in country and the geopolitics of trading of these critical minerals and getting them into parts of the financial system, or rather into the real economy that the financial system supports through investments and, and, and lending and the implications. So there are a few. First, geopolitics in the form of ha hampering the extraction, refinement, distribution of critical minerals would have a direct impact on prices in the spot and derivative markets. And we're just coming to terms with how that, how that can occur. Right. I mean, it could go one way. There could be increasing demand and it all goes up. But but as we know, in financial markets, that never happened. I mean, at some point, what goes up comes down and that can be very disruptive as perceptions of risk change. And then um, particularly, as you note, as if there's concentration in the banking or non-bank system with those who are intermediating the mm. spot derivative markets and critical minerals, they tend to be they have leverage. Yeah. They have desperate need for liquidity when times are tough. And, and depending on the nature of these entities, they may not have a central bank backstop. In most cases, yeah. they don't if they're not banks. Mm -hmm. And if their backstop is the banking system, who charges a high fee, but at the end of the day, as we talked about, if there's fragilities in these banks that suddenly are getting you know, calls on their liquidity from, from these different large concentrated players, and you're having collateral uh, repricing, that becomes uh, a potential crisis very quickly. And then the second two, just because this is an OECD perspective, that there is a lot of sovereign debt in the system yeah. right now. It's one of the key financial stability risks. And if you think about sovereign debt from some of the players that I think one of the other panelists showed on the charts here yeah. in terms of uh, the, the extraction, if there are regime changes or some stress there, that can have implications for sovereign debt. I'll just put it out there. I won't go into detail on that one, but you can imagine how that yeah. unfolds in an unfortunate situation. And then how these factors combine ultimately 
Again, as I mentioned, if you can't pass through the cost to the end user, you do it's inflationary, but let's assume that you can't fully pass it through. You're going to have a lot of firms that rely in some form, direct or indirect, on critical minerals. And if that cost isn't passed through, that is going to undermine their profitability and undermine their credit worthiness. And it can be one notch downgrade or it can be distress. I mean, it depends on how much leverage they have. But that, of course, will come back through not only to the banking system that's providing lending, but for many of these players, they're also in the leveraged loan markets. And you have leveraged loan funds that have liquidity transformation, ETFs that have some pretty interesting mechanisms. And when you have leveraged loans and leverage in the financial products, and then you have volatility and uncertainty from the critical mineral impact, that too can lead to, to, to challenges. Then lastly, I'm going to push this just one step further, and we're getting a bit more conceptual here. But we, we haven't quite seen this yet, or the, I should say the evidence is new and mixed, that markets should be differentiating between the leaders and laggards in uh -huh. the financial system uh -huh. in terms of their climate transition. And to the extent that you have some firms that are shown to be laggards mm -hmm. in the climate transition because their borrowers are not able themselves to move along in the climate transition because they can't afford or have access to the critical minerals or the benefits of the critical minerals from renewables, then you're going to have financial firms that are going to be repriced in terms of the cost of capital. You know, it could be marginal, but still there would be an effect. And then lastly, their reaction function could be that they're realizing they can't hit their interim targets at 2030. Many of them have the 2030 interim targets. But they want to stick to their G funds or other commitments, and they turn to the voluntary carbon markets. And this could ultimately actually put a lot of pressure on voluntary carbon markets and cause the price of, of the carbon credits to skyrocket around this period of time so that firms or financial firms are going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place with pricing of critical minerals and pricing in voluntary carbon markets. Both of them could have a negative impact on the financial system in its effort to move to net zero. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I think you scared us quite enough there, actually. <laughs> well, whilst we absorb all that, but I think the I think the most important thing is, is the way in which all of these issues are connected. And I think you across between the four of you as a panel actually I think you you really you really bring to life as it were the different elements of this issue and how they are connected um and we're starting to get questions coming in which is very exciting um and Daniel I've got a question from you actually from Elena Almeida who's at the Bank of England um and it's, it might be Elena or Elena but anyway my apologies anyway from the bank uh who asks as I understand the majority of the extraction of these minerals will be located in nature-rich, low- and middle-income countries where industrial policies are shifting towards ramping up production. Um, and you talked about trade-offs and permitting, et cetera. And Elena is particularly interested in asking what measures can be taken to ensure that nature-related risks are balanced and the need to extract these minerals in the quantities needed to facilitate the climate transition. So, uh it's a good question, and it is indeed the case that, um, and I think this is maybe touched on by another of the questions that came up, um, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of minerals are located in, uh, you know, either biodiversity hotspots or other, you know, um, um, areas that where conservation values are high, uh, and so it's a, it's a big worry. There, there are clearly trade-offs here, right, and um, I, I sort of, elsewhere written a little bit about this I, I do think that there's a real uh, challenge it's well there's a challenge both for the mining industry which um, has a, a bad reputation uh, based on bad performance mm -hmm. uh, some horrendous episodes in the past 
at the same time, quite a lot of initiatives to uh, and and some very good ones to raise raise standards, including on issues like biodiversity protection. Um, uh, there's a challenge also for the environmental movement, I think, in in its thinking around mining, because there's this instinctive dislike of raw material extraction because of the inevitable uh, disruption to local mm -hmm. ecosystems, right? Uh, it, it involves digging stuff out the ground. That cannot be done. It can be done better, but it can't be done in a way that is 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 pure. But tackling climate change, uh, getting these minerals that are needed for the energy transition, at least until recycling is possible mm -hmm. in the volumes that we would eventually hope to be the case. And that was another question raised. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, 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 this, so mine, more mining will be needed, right? So the, the question then is, how do you do it? This is the key question. How mm -hmm. do you do it in the most responsible way? And, and this is, again, this plays into so there's all sorts of things that one can enforce governments and companies themselves voluntarily can do much better on um, biodiversity protection. Um, uh, uh, there's a whole whole area which I won't go into of sort of offsetting around mines and, and the funding of conservation projects, which is not, again, not ideal, but it's better than how mining used to be done. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I uh, have also, articulated what I think at core needs to happen, which is a, a, a new grand bargain should be struck, needs to be struck between the, the mining industry and governments and, and other stakeholders where uh, the mining industry uh, very, very significantly raises its standards, whether it's on biodiversity protection, other you know uh, social and environmental impacts, um, so that there's a more of a um, trust in the industry that it will do it well, but in return, acceptance that there need to be more mines, because without that local acceptance, and particularly in OECD countries, I, I mean, there, it, it is almost impossible to develop a new mine in, in many OECD countries. So there, is this, there are these huge dilemmas here, which I think we're you know, the broad discussion on this sort of skirts around and both for the companies needing to raise standards and the environmental movement needing to grapple and choose how to make some of these trade-offs, I think is key. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and we, we're turning back, um, unsurprisingly, uh, Sophia, so you've got a hand up there. I wanted you to come in on, on that one. And then I was also going to uh, to bring you on another question actually had been raised by a couple, a couple of people, but let's let's hear your comments on on your thoughts on, on this issue first, because it is so important. I think uh, what was said was is absolutely true. I don't like these dilemmas though, because one of the, one of the issues uh, that we're facing is the fact that we keep telling the public that energy demand is going to increase. And this is understandable given the, the, the ways that we've been structuring our economies. But I think if the war in Ukraine taught us one thing is that for the first time, the European Union brought to the table the issue of energy reduction and energy efficiency in ways that was not discussed before. It reminds me of a restaurant menu, which keeps adding items uh, I think this hyper choice that we're offering, because we're, we keep telling the public that the demands for energy are going to be such that we need to keep adding more to the table. Uh, we've made natural gas the, the miraculous bridge fuel uh, to greening the economy. We're still investing in extraction in the mm. Eastern Mediterranean. 
just now as we're trying to do all of this because of the squeeze that uh, the Russian invasion has, has caused to Europe. So what I'm trying to say is that yes, we should, everybody has to, to be serious about this transition. Yes, the mining is going to be inevitable and needs to happen. Uh, it can't only be the developing world where all these holes will be drilled and open and the mining will happen uh, so that the OECD countries can enjoy. This is not the way to move forward, but we mm. also need to be frank about our own footprints and about how we can lower our cons energy consumption, because that will also teach us to not be wasteful. Mm. Absolutely. Eric, I was wondering if you wanted to come in on this issue. Um, th thanks, Rob. I think there's there's a number of things that was brought to my mind. Um, I, I might want to to jump on one or two 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 points. The first one was acceptance in developed countries. Um, I think we we can't expect uh, the public um, to be excited about a local mind uh, developing next to the home, right? Um, and there's there's always you know. Uh, with any significant project in the developed world, whether that is housing, whether that is train infrastructure, or or uh, energy uh, windmill farm, you know, you can always face significant opposition. You know, despite people accepting uh, that uh, you need housing, or you need trains, or you need windmills. So I think we also need to understand that um, opposition is a normal component. Of, of the democratic practices uh, around around the development of projects, and so so that's 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 a key key thing to to keep in mind. One um, one of the challenges that can occur, for example, in the development of a mine, is 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 the slow, of course, the slow permitting, which is very often pointed out. But there's also the question of how um, in in a in a country that upholds the state of law. Um, how long can the legal litigation go on once the permitting has been attributed uh, or not? And mm -hmm. very often, um, if, if you look at mining projects, say, say for example, in France, um, those litigation processes can be can be quite long and can probably significantly longer than the permitting process itself. So, so there's there's a number of things around institutions um, that can also also uh, contribute to having better debates. And better instructions of 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 those of those permits. Um, so so maybe that's that would be my my key point on that issue. Excellent, an awful lot that we could delve into in, on on that issue. But I want to return. Got a, a lot of questions coming in. Returning actually to the issue on the geopolitical front, um, and a couple of groups of questions uh, focusing on the role of Africa actually and China Africa relations. So Meta, who's an LSE student, hello Meta. Um, says with China being a huge player in producing solar panels and other green technologies, which requires critical minerals, many of which are from Africa, um, particularly Director Yusufia, do you see China's role in Africa as a win-win development or as a neo-colonialistic one? And will the China-Africa relationship become stronger? Um, Mohamed Marlin has a, a slightly different twist on, on this, um, who asks, um, oh, couldn't the West end their dependency on countries like China by focusing on stabilizing, improving their relations with mineral-rich African countries, replacing Africa, China with Africa. So uh, two slightly different takes there on, on, on how geopolitics in relation to Africa may develop. Sophia, what have you got any thoughts on that? Uh, 
Um, I, I'd like to say the following, and sometimes I get criticized for saying this, but you know, uh, nobody, I'll, I'll start differently. I think that, um, yes, a lot of the critical minerals are in Africa. A lot of minerals in general are in Africa. Uh, I think the importance of the developing world in this green transition is a sine qua non. We cannot leave Africa and other developing nations outside of this process uh, as they are the most vulnerable. And also they will be doubling in population size in the next you know, 20, 30 years. Um, so the, the China's role in Africa. Well, you know, China went to, was in Africa under Mao, came back to Africa uh, during a, a time of, let's say, tension uh, with the West after Tiananmen, and and really uh, rebuild its networks there. They did offer an alternative for financing. Of course, they were looking for resources. Of course, they were looking to sell products. Uh, there's nothing new about that. The West uh, paved the way for the way that uh, global networks, trade networks were built uh, from you know, centuries ago. So I think that in the beginning, uh, having China there that was doing investment in infrastructures um, and was much more, I would say, um, amenable to, uh, to, to taking the lead from the whatever governments they were working with, I think that gave a lot of uh, African nations agency um, to be able to not be only dependent on the West for financing, because the idea was that the West is coming into Africa and other developing nations with normative uh, values that and, and uh, frameworks that they wanted adapted. China was saying, we're not going to interfere. It's going to be win-win for everyone. Uh, is it a win-win for everyone? I mean, uh, there's been a lot of criticism about the kinds of investments China has made in Africa. Um, so there is um, uh, a growing discussion about uh, China's footprint. I think China quickly, um, how would I say, responds to criticism. For example, they were saying the Belt and Road is going to be the kiss of death for the environment because all the infrastructures were very fossil fuel intensive uh, and extractive. And China started to, to switch the story around. So the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, the United States after the Cold War left Africa. Europe was always there in a transformative role. It transformed its own relations with Africa and views um, their uh, African partners as real partners increasingly uh, understands, I think, speaks to uh, and acknowledges the, the agency there and has maintained very close relations. I hear that the United States is now returning to Africa. And I think that that's also a very positive sign because we do need uh, to, for Africans to be at the table, to bring their own voice and to also not have to pick sides, but to be able to negotiate. And I think this is this is great for African nations to have uh, different financial partners and political partners and tech partners and all of that. Excellent. I mean, it moves to, and I think, Dan, you might be coming in to, 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 to address this issue, but I'm going to ask you to anyway. Um, quite a few people are, are really wanting to probe this issue that you mentioned in relation to how to ensure such countries can avoid the resource curse. And Philippa Park, who's student from Cumbria, puts it quite well. 
How will developing countries and newly emerging economies be impacted and changed by these issues? And will they reap the benefits of their resource rich richness, which is obviously an issue that you touched on. So um, I wonder if you can just address, address that point. And then uh, any other members of the panel who might have thoughts on that as well, but over to you, Daniel, first. Sure. Um, we're just perhaps following on from Sophia's point yeah. and that question. It, it seems to me that the it all hinges um, on how this the, the geopolitics, if you can, it's a bit of a clumsy phrase, but so geopolitical competition for critical minerals, how that game, as it were, evolves. And it could either lead to disaster, I think, for Africa and other countries or fantastic uh, development benefits. Mm. If that game follows, and I'm caricaturing, I'm sure a bit, but if it follows the model of the sort of the history of geopolitical competition for resources again particularly if you look at oil and the competition for oil in the middle east and elsewhere it's about uh, striking the sort of the the great power as it were concerned striking a deal with the elite of those mm -hmm. countries um uh, to secure the supplies potentially to enrich the firms of that you know the the western mm -hmm. country concerned um with little benefit um for the the population of the you know the, the poorer country um and it, you know uh, embedding uh, of, of corruption and potentially leading to conflict and so on or you know this is the great promise of resources it sadly often doesn't materialize but it, it leads to sustained you know uplift in uh um economic well-being and there are some examples whether it's Botswana or Chile or or indeed Britain in the industrial revolution it's coal reserves look at the wealth of that and broad you know ultimately eventually broad base wealth of that led to so resources have the potential to unlock huge economic gains which are broad based but I just see that at the moment there is this real risk because because you can see how these historical patterns assert themselves that countries whether it's America or China or Europe become very focused on the short term are we going to have enough of whatever it is cobalt copper and let's strike a deal rather than thinking long term about what is going to generate the really long-term security of supply which is a development offer and a package and a and a working with sort of responsible leaders of uh the the relevant countries it's responsibility on all sides and mm. respect for um there to sophia's point respect for their voices that is actually that's the win-win it's going to help these countries most and it's going to lead to long-term security of supply otherwise we're locked into this cycle of conflict corruption and so forth to my mind absolutely i wonder if anybody else has got any on thoughts on that um, and it's it's a it's a great vision daniel that you put forward there and i just wonder how how realistic it is to to be able to, to achieve that whether anybody's got any thoughts on how we might how this situation might unfold and, and Rob I was very struck actually what well, you, you just threw in the sovereign debt of some of these countries into that and I was trying to work out how that might play out actually in different ways. Sure I could give you um, I'm certainly not a specialist in that but you can imagine for all of its faults um, ESG has made a lot of progress um, and Sophia laid out you know why it takes a, a well-functioning bureaucracy to lay out the details of what rules and regulations and good practices should be. So the challenge with ESG is that uh, the World Bank came out with this excellent report showing that there's a correlation between um, bad ESG scores and low incomes. And so obviously, if you have low-income countries, developing countries, 
um, that all out SQL tend to have worse ESG. It even hurts their capital, um, yeah. their capital situation more, despite all of our euphoria about SDGs. So there's a huge problem here. Yeah. This could be an area where policymakers can mm -hmm. focus a lot more on yeah. good governance, environmental, biodiversity, and social, and really craft programs. And it takes the countries, a few countries we've mentioned, to go in there and make sure that happens. And I, I I have to be careful on how I say this. It's a personal view, but shaped obviously by 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 my 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 employer's um, good practices, which is OECD OECD countries, and not every country we've we've mentioned on the call here. Uh, not every country is an OECD country and doesn't adhere to good practices. And we have a range of good practices and standards for quality infrastructure that adhere to ESG and adhere to certifications to make sure that the impact all else equal is neutral to positive on the societies that are engaging in these activities. So more transparency and more adherence to these good policies and practices and making sure we have a community of countries that don't try and undermine that is very important. And mm -hmm. in the geopolitical environment, it's gonna take a lot more diplomacy to figure out how to get all of these countries um, you know, in the G20, in OECD and other memberships to adhere to a higher standard. Absolutely. Um, is it, I think incredibly well, well expressed and, and Sophia ties completely into your, uh, the comments you're making in relation to, to the roles of rules and standards and regulation. I would say that because I'm a regulatory policy lawyer, but you know, <laughs> so I'm slightly biased in this. It's a fantastic way to die actually to be smothered by rules and regulations. You know? <laughs> um, um, but I think there is a, there is a, an issue which um, you've all touched on in, in different ways, but I think we need to bring to the fore, which is whether we're whether we're being radical and, enough. Um, and a few people have asked this, but I, but Anthony Cox, who's a senior policy advisor at the Ecological Institute and formerly OECD, I think puts it um, very well here. So he says the focus has been on the supply of virgin critical minerals, um, but he says uh, this is wrong. Is this really quite a short-term and narrow focus? What about demand management as a complement, not a substitute for focus on supply? And Sophia, you started to touch on this and I just thought we'd bring it out to the fore. Can't we come at the problem from both ends by reducing the rate of growth and demand for critical minerals through circular economy approaches, more fundamental changes in the way which transport and cities are organized, changes in the way that consumer products are used and consumer manufactured. In other words, are we trying to, are we trying to keep our economy the same and just transition what we have in a kind of lift and shift mode? rather than thinking much more radically about how we um, how we produce, how we consume, how we live our lives. Absolutely, because the mantra is, if we stop consuming, the economy will stop and then we'll all fall off the planet and you know we'll, we'll fall into a huge recession and there is no life after that. And I think that, that, that the reality is, and I totally agree and I hinted at that mm. uh, by saying that the first thing, the greatest news that I heard after uh, in, in with respect to how they, the European Union wanted to deal with energy is that for the first time, somebody said, okay, really, you know, you've got to lower the thermostat and turn off um, the lights. And I think that that was a, a very important message. And, and this is not scarcity. We're, it's not about depriving people of their rights or of making life impossible in advanced economies. This is about understanding that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit of waste that could be, um, you know, uh, reined in, 
And that's a very important issue. Now, in the beginning, when I was thinking about what I would talk about today, I wanted to, and I did hint at it, I said that, you know, this, our entire focus has been about the reduction of emissions. And the reduction of emissions, uh, the goal has now been to switch to electric vehicles. Now, I want to remind everybody that I think there are more than 240 million cars circulating in the United States alone, maybe even more. Imagine how many millions of cars we have to change from uh, conventional cars into electric vehicles. We're talking about a lot of materials, a lot of infrastructures. Every gas station is going to have to be retrofitted. I'm talking in the near future. These are huge infrastructure changes. Now there's a whole other sector that's going to come into focus, which is our food system. Mm. It's responsible for as many emissions as transportation. Mm. So I think uh, I think we need to to I mean, it's great to be focused and to stay on message, and it's great to have a plan, but we also need to, to remember that we, we have to multitask. There are many other areas by which we can gain some time reducing emissions in other areas of uh, the economy. Again, I do not believe that this will lead to sacrifice and scarcity, at least not at this stage, hmm. uh, but we do need to, to adapt and we do need to recognize that we cannot turn the entire planet into a mine because we now have it on our minds that, that all of the, this infrastructure shift has to is the only way forward. We have to have um, you yeah. know, a toolkit with many tools. Yeah. I mean, there is something slightly paradoxical, and, and Daniel, you touched on this, about the um the sustainability debate requiring a reliance on another set of finite resources in order to become sustainable um and so just thinking about how we manage to avoid that i mean you, you started to touch on the issues of recycling for example and reclaiming uh these critical minerals so that they're not just used once and, and just thinking how can you see a, a further economy growing as it were around that uh recycling uh, those recycling properties and, and the science around that, in fact, including perhaps the science in relation to developing material science um, substitutions uh, for some of these critical minerals. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm not an expert in, in some aspects of this, but without a doubt, right, there needs to be a strong focus on recycling and reuse, mm. um, demand reduction, conservation, all those sort of, you know, it's, it's critical um, uh, uh, the, the 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 analysis of sort of sensible groups and people uh, like Eric, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it is it nonetheless suggests that you know recycling isn't and reuses isn't going to fix uh, the problem that we've got in the near term. Is so so we definitely need to push on it hard, but it's not going to fix it. And and also just so look, I, I so I think there needs to be we need to push on all these fronts without without a doubt. Um, the way perhaps I'm being pessimistic or too pragmatic, but it seems to me that nonetheless that the way the world works and the way the power of big industry, one can see speedier action happening, whether mm. you like it or not, in terms of um, uh, you know because it's 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 capitalism w w working you know hard to create new growth opportunities, new areas of profit. It's that's that's. Um, what's got us to this place but we know it's quite a powerful engine whereas the, these other measures absolutely push on them hard but it's it just uh, this is a bit of a vague thought but it, uh, without a 
sort of almost revolutionary change in our mindsets, mm. it's difficult to see that having the, the, the impact that we might want it to. Okay, Eric, your thoughts on this? You've been queued up nicely by Daniel, but I could see you, I could see you leaping there for a turn. <laughs> thoughts came no, to the, mind, it's scribbling there's, there's clearly two two subjects here. There's both the question of you know how how we can reduce uh, by our behaviours consumptions, and I think uh, we've we've been trying to touch on that. Um, I can think of a model uh, where we were looking at the size of vehicles. You know uh, what happens if we we use less SUVs typically, not not change the number of cars, but just just the size and you know the space for that, particularly in developed countries. On the other hand, it's quite obvious. Um, there's also large portions of, of humanity that still uh, expect uh, some of the goods that are quite common in, in other areas of the world. And that's that's also uh, a demand that needs to be heard. Um, on, on the question of recycling, I think there's, there's a very practical example, and it's, it's light bulbs. Uh, light bulbs mm -hmm. are a great consumer of energy, and particularly in, in the past. Um, there's been a series of technology changes uh, that have allowed us to actually use much more efficiently our, our energy to produce light uh, from the initial Edison light bulb that contained mostly tungsten to then um, fluo compact, fluorescent, you know, energy saving light bulbs we, we used to have. And then now this, this new generation of LEDs, uh, LED light bulbs. Now, can you recycle one to make another? You definitely can't. So, so you know, in some ways, it, you could say it, there's been a failure here uh, because uh, typically the fuel compact will use very different metals than gallium, which I think are in, on the EU critical material list typically. So sometimes you need to accept you're going to be needing a new metal uh, or to use a new technology um, that overall will have positive impacts. And sometimes also that technology change will actually make recycling a bit more more difficult. So sometimes there's, there's some space for extraction. And if you look, for example, at the volume at which we, we predict, um, or we, we expect uh, lithium to be mined, um, you might be interested to compare it to the volumes in which we already mine, for example, coal right now. And so, uh, of course, there can be opposition against a lithium mine in Europe. But then we can also look at the size of coal mines in Europe too. And sometimes the dimensions are much, much, much greater. I, I, I could think of a number of projects where, where this is the case. Excellent, thank you. And actually that leads into a, a question which has, has come in relation to um, just, just quote unquote stranded assets. Um, and I'm trying to find it now. So, Ayumide uh, Babatunde, uh, and it's, again, excuse my pronunciation, uh, it's a question to all speakers, the move from fossil to non-fossil fuels will lead to lots of assets being stranded. Are there plans for those assets? Um, and he says, hope the movement to net zero and the intention to reduce waste won't lead to the creating of different waste, thereby leading to more waste in the environment. And obviously a key issue in the transition as well, uh, and financial implications as well for who's lending to those, those stranded assets. So how do we... Uh, what do we think is going to happen in that in that regard? I think we have a, I think the conversation about stranded assets was very high a few years back. Mm. I think the conversation about stranded assets now, given the energy crisis that we face uh, because of the war, has been set aside. Yeah, there's very little discussion about stranded assets. We're pumping as much as we possibly can. <laughs> um, 
It's unbelievable, actually. Mm. And, and one of the big shifts that people don't realize is that the number one oil and gas producer in the world now is the United States. Mm. Actually phenomenal because of the fracking technology. One technological innovation that people thought, and in fact, given that I'm of a Greek background, I want to say that the inventor of this great technology is Greek, uh, Greek-American. And so th this technology really revolutionized uh, the way that natural gas was extracted and also gave new life to um, oil wells in the United States. So I think... Um, I think the conversation about stranded assets is put aside, as I said before, because it's too much of a, a great, uh, I, don't, I don't even want to call it weapon, but of a, an asset mm. uh, power uh, to sacrifice it. Uh, this is why we're trying to push for the green economy in parallel. But we do need to seriously bring back this conversation. Because for a while, it seemed that you know there's just so much capital to go around, even in capitalism. And the fact that there's still new investments happening in oil and gas, uh, in new places, places where the because of the price, it's now financially uh, doable to extract. I think that should give us pause because that's that's really sabotaging this huge effort that we're all trying to support and that the world and the governments and citizens would like to see happen so that we avoid the worst of the climate crisis. Absolutely, so I'm afraid we're, um, I can see Daniel want to speak there, but I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. Um, that has been absolutely fascinating. I think we've managed to, we've managed to touch on, uh, we've covered a huge ground, I think we but we haven't really had the opportunity to go in depth, but that means, just means we'll need to do more events of this nature. So that's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant outcome. Um, so thank you very much uh, to our panelists, Sophia, Daniel, Eric, and Rob, and thank you everybody who's been listening online. I think you'll agree with me that that has been an incredibly rich discussion. We, as I say, we've covered a huge amount of ground. Um, uh, on a, what is an absolutely essential topic. So I'm very grateful for, to our panelists for joining us this evening and I'm very grateful to everybody online for again joining us and um, do tell your friends if they couldn't make it just to download the podcast. It will be available soon on a platform near you. Brilliant. Thank you very much everybody and goodbye. And thank you Julia for wonderful moderation. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.